listening to the Seven Rivers Student Ministry Podcast, a ministry of Seven Rivers Church in Citrus County, Florida. Here at SRSM, we believe that all students are lovable through a relationship with Jesus. Visit our website at sevenrivers.org backslash students. Get excited. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. So we're going to talk about sexuality tonight. So, um, you know, when I was growing up, I was probably confused until maybe eighth grade or seventh grade, which is, you know, obviously sheltered life um, for sure. I'm, I'm making myself seem really cool by saying this. But I used to think uh, that sex was just like just giving like, like just lying in the bed. Like, so I, we, okay, I got to explain this. <laughs> I gotta do a better job. When I was, when, did any of you guys have a book read to you when you were told about sex? Anyone do a book? Anyone do a or anything like that? Is that middle school? In the nice. Thanks, guys. Here comes an e- here comes an email um, from a parent. Okay, so. <laughs> Has anyone, anyone get the book talk with a book, a picture book, actually? Jeez. It was, there's not, so this book was like the most G-rated book to do this. So it was like super ambiguous. Like just had no idea what was happening. Yeah. But here's the problem. It didn't have the stuff that you need to know in order to understand what sex is. So I'm sitting there with my dad and maybe like a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, whatever, fourth grade, right? Fifth grade, you kind of start getting that convo, maybe third grade. And the book pretty much goes like this. There's a mom, dad, they like high five, something like that. <laughs> then, then the next picture, I kid you not, is just them lying in bed, like side to side next to each other. And then the next picture is a baby. Like, and so what do you think? Like, and so my dad's like, you have any questions? I'm like, nope. Like, whatever. Like, don't lie in a bed with a woman and or else you're going to have a child. So uh, for the longest time, that's what I thought sex was. was so to make you laugh a little bit, um, probably not until literally eighth or ninth grade until someone was like, that is not what sex. You are so confused. I was like, you're right. I am. Can someone please tell me um, what this work, how this, how this works? Um, so, uh, yeah, so that, that's just to, to say that um, I was sexually confused growing up, and maybe you are too. Um, and so we're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to be in Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 to 28. So if you guys want to turn there, um, but I'm going to try to set it, this up a little bit. So you and I, we live in a culture that really does worship um, sex um, and worship sexuality and identity um, with sex. Um, you know, uh, pornography worldwide is a $97 billion industry. That's, that's a wild amount of money. Uh, one out of six 
And so also before I start talking about this stuff, I know some of, you know, based on just even these statistics, some of you guys in this room have some, have most likely some people in this room have, have had some horrible sexual encounters already um, and some traumatic ones. Uh, so this statistic is, you know, one out of six American women have been victims of or attempted or completed rape. So one out of six women in America, someone has tried to rape them or has also completed the rape with them. And then there's 2.78 million men in the U.S. who have been victims of attempted or completed rape. Uh, we live in a world where there's a sex trade uh, of young boys and girls. Uh, that happens in America. Uh, that happens in Florida. Tampa is one of the big cities um, for this. Uh, we live in a world where uh, there's, there's an incredible amount of sexual sin, sexual broken, brokenness. The average American on average throughout their lifespan will have se um, seven sexual partners in their lifetime. The average age of an American to have sex for the first time in their life is, four is between 14 and 17 years of age. The average age of a person's first encounter with pornography is 11. I think that statistic's a little dated. It might even be younger. Um, I, thought, I think it might even be nine years old right now, first encounter of pornography. Um, out of transgender people, the onset of gender dysphoria starts at seven. At age seven, there are seven-year-olds on average at seven that are struggling with gender dysphoria. Uh, Citrus County is the second highest county in Florida for teen pregnancies. In our culture, um, you know, being a, a virgin is, uh, is made fun of. Um, in our culture, um, you have a, a industry, a $1.9 billion industry dedicated to transitioning bodies uh, because of gender dysphoria. There's money involved with sex. Um, there's money involved with sexuality. Um, there's money to make uh, there's a lot of money to make, and our culture it sees that, knows that, and has us hooked on it. Uh, so with that being said, I mean, it's pretty clear, you and I, we live, something's wrong. Uh, you know, we, something has gone wrong, wrong, something has gone out of order. We live um, in a world that is sexually sinful. But this is, you know, not how it has always been. And so in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, there's a way of how it should be. Um, there's a vision of that. And there's a vision of a way how sexuality should play out in our society and our culture. God has created an order of things, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, so I'm going to read this, um, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and then we're going, to, we're going to break it down a little bit. So God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's word spoken to you. This might be one of the most important pieces in understanding you um, is these few verses right here. So we just talked about it. Things are sexually out of order. There's a cultural movement right now, a cultural moment right now. If you feel a certain way, if you desire a certain thing, then that's who you are. That's how you've been created. That is um, the way things should be for you. But the Bible says that's actually not how it should be. The Bible says that there is something that has gone wrong that has infected all of our hearts and desires. Something has made us out of order with the way he intended things to be. 
God has an order to things. What is that order? You and I, we are, every person in this room are sexually out of order. There is something disordered about every single person in this room when it comes to their sexuality. There's something disordered in my sexuality and there's something disordered in yours. And we need somebody to set the ledger straight. We need clarity and we need truth even more in this cultural moment in space, time, and history. So God gives us that. And I have three points, okay? So we're on the first point. Man, we're flying. You're welcome. Thank me later. First point, God made you in his image and likeness. Verse 26 and 27, let us make man in our image. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. The image of God he created him, male, female, he created them. You are made with the imprint of God upon you. What does this mean? It means that inside of your body, you, your soul, inside of your body connected together, united, you guys are like God. It means that men in this room have God's image imprinted upon them. It means that women in this room have God's image imprinted on them. And it means when he says male and female, he created them and they bear God's image in his image. It means that when they are together in relationship, they also bear God's image. And when they are in relationship, in marriage, they create more prints of God. Not by lying next to each other in the bed. Through sex. <laughs> that, poor, that book, I should throw it away. And that was an awful book. Part of God's order and desi- design. Part of God's order and design is, is for you to bear his image. And to have men and women take part in creation with him and in, in, in creating his image and bringing it in fullness across the planet. So what does it mean that the image of God is printed on you? All right, I'm gonna stick with this idea of printed on you. What, is it, what does being made in God's image and likeness, what does that even mean for our sexuality? Where, where are we going with this? So at our middle school retreat, Brandon, um, he spoke at it, Pastor Brandon, and he talked about something that was super, I thought was just so good. Um, so the Queen of England just passed away, and they just installed uh, a, new, a new king. I think it's King Charles, am I on point? So they installed King Charles. But because there is a new king, they have to do something. Does anyone know what they're doing right now? They're having to throw away all, they're having to get rid of all the coins with Queen Elizabeth's face on it. And what they're doing is they're printing new coins with the face of the king on it. All right, and so what's the idea behind printing royalty, printing kings, printing presidents, printing any sort of leader upon a dollar or upon a coin? What's the concept here? The idea is that wherever that coin goes and however it is used, it belongs to the king. That coin is the king's. You're borrowing it. You are in his province, his kingdom, and it has his image on it, so it's his and it's all his. And so the reason why they put their image on it is because they want you to pay taxes, for one. Remember, that is not your dollar. That is that's given to you. You, owe, you actually owe us taxes every year. Um, it's, you know, that, that it belongs to them. It's owned by them. Whatever that coin used use for is, is purchased, that imprint on that coin, whatever it's used for. So if you buy land, that's really the king's land, all right? You're paying taxes on it. You pay taxes on everything. It really, I mean, truly is. Um, you know, royalty lasts forever, eternally to them, but us, our lives are so short, you know, 
It's, it's, it's this idea that of ownership, the image being printed on the coin. And this is a common idea in Mark 12 with Jesus and the Pharisees. You guys know the story about the coin. All right, so like literally Pharisees approach Jesus and they try to trick him into paying taxes to Caesar or to like denying that you should pay taxes to Caesar. That's what the whole idea here. But Jesus takes the coin and they say like, what should we do with this coin? You know, Jesus, should we give it to Caesar? Like, that's what they're asking. But they, they wanted to deny that and say, no, you should give it to the synagogue. You should give it to the church. You should, you know what I mean? But he says this in verse 16, in Mark 12, verse 16. He says, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then in verse 17, Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now see, these are Pharisees. They know the Bible. They know Genesis 1. What Jesus is saying is that the coin has the print of Caesar on it, that piece of metal. Okay, it belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him. But who has the print of God on them? Who has the likeness of God to him? Who bears God's image? Who belongs to God? That's you. That's the men and women in this room. You bear God's image. You have his print on you. You belong to him. You're owned by him. You're not, you're not your own. There's no autonomy. There's no individualism. As much as you might think you are, you have, there's nothing. What control did you have in choosing your gender? Zero. You were born with it. What control did you have in choosing when you were born in space, time, and history? Zero. You had no choice in it. What control did you have being born in America? Zero. Richard, you were born in Germany, right? So what control? Zero. You had no control over where you were born, when you were born, to whom you were born, to what you will inherit, to what belongs to you. You have so actually little control over the things that are actually most important in your life and your existence. What does that, so that, what, that affects our sexuality. It means that you are not your own, okay? You guys have to hear me clearly because if you miss this point, it's just nothing else is gonna make sense with my argument. And if you disagree with me, that's totally fine, but please just listen to my argument. I've, I've been listening to all, many other people's arguments. Listen to the argument that God makes. If you bear God's image, you belong to him. You actually don't have a choice in the matter. God decides who you are and what you are, especially when it, even, when it comes to your sexuality. And he says, you're either a male or you're a female. And that is in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. And let me say something. To be a male is incredible. And to be a female is incredible. The way God has made you has design and purpose to it. That's my second point. God made you with a purpose. You're made in his image, but you have a mission. You're a man for a reason and you're a woman for a reason. And it's not for the stereotypical cultural things that we say it is. Like, no. Just you know, being a man is not wearing boots and owning a gun, although you can. Being a woman is not you know, wearing dresses, although you can. Those things are just cultural taglines that we add to this. But God physically marks you as a man and physically marks you as a woman and gives you a purpose and you have a, a role to play with your body and what he has given you. So in verse 128, this is what God says. He says in Genesis 120, he says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. 
He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over fish, sea, birds, heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. From the beginning, it's commanded that males and females are to have sex and to create prince, babies, that fill the earth with God's image, with those who belong to God and those who submit to him and listen to him and obey him. You and I were invited in his work of creation. God doesn't just say, hey, no, he says, hey, why don't you create with me? And and one of the most powerful and intimate experiences you can have in a relationship through sex. Why don't you make with me? And really, it's not, it really is amazing that God does something incredible inside the womb of a woman where there's nothing, all of a sudden, a sperm and egg come together and create an eternal living image-bearing being from that vast void in the womb. Just like how there was nothing and God spoke and created all things. It's incredible. It's, it's powerful. It's meaningful. Do not miss the power and meaning behind your sexuality and sex. Your body has a purpose. It's meant for something. It's it's designed to bring new life into the world. It's designed in filling the earth with God's blessing. He says, God blessed them and said, have sex. He blesses them and says, have sex. This is part of the blessing. This is part of this beautiful thing that is part of your sexuality. So one of the biggest counters to this what about my desires, Mikey? What about my feelings? One of the biggest is like, I, I have desires, I have feelings. I don't want to just be married to one person. I don't want to have sex with just one person. I don't want to have sex with the opposite gender. I'm attracted to um, the same, uh, same sex. Like, those are my feelings, those are my desires. This is the counter. Like, inside of me, you know, just because you get married doesn't mean that all of a sudden, if you're a heterosexual and you're married, doesn't mean that all of a sudden you no longer think that other women are pretty or other guys are handsome. It, there is a pro, there's a problem that continues in our sexuality and in our sin. It, it, it continues to be um, fostered inside our souls. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is a deceitful above all things. Your desires and your heart deceive you. He's saying you're, what you want is actually corrupted by your sin. So your heterosexuals are corrupt. Your heterosexual desires, they're corrupted. Your homosexual desires, they're corrupted. Your bisexual desires are corrupted. All of your sexual desires in and of yourself is perverted by sin. Not one of us has an appropriate sexual desire in and of our sin. So much of what we do sexually Or what we do with our sexuality is based on feelings and desires and wants and cravings and urges. But this is not how it should be. It's a piece of your sexuality, but it shouldn't dominate your sexuality. Just because, you know, um, like I I just said, because you're married doesn't mean that your wife might still, still struggle with pornography or your husband might still struggle with pornography. Just because... You're married um, doesn't mean that you have um, desires for you know other men and other women that you have to be like, I am having this conversation with someone and like I feel like my heart is getting too much into it with this relationship. Does just because marriage doesn't solve these problems. You guys, I mean, you guys are all single here. Or a relationship doesn't solve these problems with your sexual desires. Your sexuality and your sexual sin is with you. 
And you bring it into your marriage and you bring it into your life and you bring it into your family. It's very messy. We have to address it. We have to look at it. Listen, just because um, you may feel like you're a boy stuck in a girl's body or a girl stuck in a boy's body doesn't mean that that desire is something that you should act out on. That want is something you should act out on. Every single human in here is deceived by their wants and desires. We do not, we don't get the choice in our sexuality. You don't individually get to decide. God does. And he's already decided. Why does he get the choice to decide? I mean, this is going to just hit you guys in the face and be like, oh yeah. Because it mean like, people are like, oh, I decide. Of course I decide. No, you don't. Because like I said before, who made you? God made you. You are not your own. You're actually owned. And as an American, we hate that. You are not free, but you are owned. In verses 26 and 27, it says several times, God makes and God creates. He designed you. It means you have a creator and a desire. There's an author of life. That means someone has made decisions in your and your creation and, and you didn't have any choice in it and you didn't get a vote even though we voted yesterday but you didn't get a vote he's called you to listen and to obey to his order and design and the way that he made things you're created as a male and you're created as a female for a purpose and for a reason there's a role for you to play there's a role and they're different but they're vital they're vital to creation. They're vital to God's mission. Just because you're a female doesn't mean that you bear any less of God's image or likeness. And the same thing for a male. Just because you're a male doesn't mean you bear any less. But you have a role and a design. In Genesis 2, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. So he's like, I'll make a helper for man. And this is where Eve comes in. And he, he makes Eve to help Adam on the mission to fill the earth with the image of God and to shepherd all of God's creation. In Genesis 3, this relationship between Adam and Eve quickly falls apart. They sin against God because of their sin. It puts man and woman in conflict with each other. In, in Genesis 3.16, it says that um, the woman's desires are now contrary to her husband's. That's part of the curse. This conflict between man and woman. Women are designed by God, and this is one of the coolest things in the world, to be the birthplace of life. They are a mystery in that fact that from within their womb, out of nothingness, comes forth eternal living and breathing image bearers of God. And then God does this amazing thing for the first two years of a baby's life, pretty much. He generates nourishment through their body. It's like from the beginning, from the zygote up to a two-year-old. Absolutely, that child is completely helpless and is in complete need of their mother. There's a role to play. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's designed in the female body. It's a, it's a, it's a critical piece. But because of sin, this has all been corrupted. In Genesis 3, it says you know, there's now pain in childbearing. There's pain in child raising. There's sorrow in it. It's painful. It's excruciating. In Genesis 2, it talks about man. Man has a work to do. He has animals 
to tend to. He has a garden to shepherd, to uh, grow. He has um, a job to grow and multiply God's kingdom. And he, and he has to shepherd and care for his wife, Eve. He has to lead, protect, shepherd, love. And yet, in Genesis 3, the snake enters and he doesn't kill it. He doesn't protect. He lets the snake deceive his wife. He follows her lead. He sins. And as a result, is that he looks to his work for meaning and purpose. He worships what he does. But it's so empty constantly for him. He will work all his days as hard as he can only to die and to see his work wash away. Men, your work is meaningless because of sin. All your efforts for your grades and what you're trying to do and accomplish with your life, crap. Because at the end of the curse, God says, I'm going to crush you to dust because of your sin. And someone else is going to take all your money. And someone else is going to take all you've earned. And they're going to waste it. They're going to waste it. It's, it's, it's rather ironic. And the, the entirety of the biblical story is a story about men and of, of men not leading, protecting, and shepherding, and loving, but stories of men abusing, hurting, raping, murdering, killing. I mean, have you guys read the Bible? Read the, read the dang Bible. I'm telling you straight up. You will read. There's no book that writes like the Bible writes. I mean, crazy stories of men. I mean, like, people are like, oh, Bible's like pro men. Why are you talking about pro men? I mean, you read the Bible, you watch men. I mean, it's just throwing dirty laundry about what men do. I mean, it's corruption. It's, it's destruction of God's order and creation. It's a returning back to nothingness. In Genesis 6, God says, the, the, you know, it says that every mankind is multiplied all over the earth. Man and woman look like God physically, but they follow the desires of their heart. They betray their image bearing. They betray the way they're designed. They fail to obey him. And it says that he grieves God's heart and he regrets making man and woman. And he plans to cleanse the earth of mankind because he's sorry that he ever made them. Your sinful sexuality is part of that. My sinful sexuality is part of that. Your rebellion to submit to God's call in your life, to trust him, to trust his design, to follow the desire of his heart instead of the desires of your heart, it damns you and condemns you. Every single one of us, sinful, and our sexuality condemned in it. We've rebelled against our design because of the desires of our hearts are contrary to God's and the way he made things. So listen, if you made a robot with the design and purpose to fold your laundry, okay, which I would love, by the way, this would be a wonderful <laughs> gift to me. If you ever, anyone want to make one for me, please. But instead, let's say this robot gets hacked and reprogram, and now instead of folding your laundry, it backhands your children in the face. <laughs> what would you do? No, no, what, you would regret making it, right? You would be like, this, this is a flawed robot design. I made it with a purpose, meaning, design for order to fold my laundry, and now it just slaps my children. <laughs> it would make you, all jokes aside, it would make you want to throw it away, destroy it. In the New Testament, Paul writes many things about sexuality. He says that the way that we act out on our sexuality is not by design. We've been hacked and reprogrammed. We're back, we're back children. 
He said, listen, marriage, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, this, this, he tells us what marriage should be. It should be between a woman and a man. Sexual relationship is between man, woman and a man in marriage with commitments. He said that everyone should just have one spouse. He said that you should both be Christians. You actually shouldn't marry, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't marry a non-Christian. But you should marry a Christian. He said that you should stop having sex outside of marriage. Stop the porn. Stop the lustful thoughts. He said that the wife should submit to her husband and that the husband should love his wife by laying down his life for her. That's how it's supposed to work. That's the order. He calls us back, Paul, over and over again in the New Testament into the created order of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. In Genesis 2, God has created you. Created you in his image. Created you with a purpose and a mission. And it includes every ounce of you, your sexuality. Stop worshiping your sexuality so much that you're willing to go to hell because you're not willing to just surrender that and trust Jesus. Stop following the desire of your hearts. They're corrupt. It creates disorder. It creates confusion. It muddies the water. We push, we gotta push back. Jesus, you okay? Okay. Bless you. God blesses you, Julia. God blesses you. Because everyone, listen, everyone's allowed to follow the desires of their own heart right now. Because that's the law of our land. It's our culture. We live in a world of complete disorder, confusion, chaos. There's no right and wrong, no truth. We've lost our way. We don't know the meaning of our lives. And we've grown depressed and hopeless. Because there's nothing to fall back on. There's no boundaries. Everything is random. Everything is meaningless. Everything's an accident. Everything is broken. No one's owning the mistakes. Who do we even blame for all this mess? God's creation that was once so very good is completely fallen into a void of formlessness and chaos. It's like Genesis 1 before God spoke. How can we have any hope? How can God reorder the disorder of our sexuality? So what's the hope? If you're in this room, you're addicted to pornography, what's your hope? Or if you look at pornography, what's your hope? What's the hope for you when you get married and you have to tell your wife or your your husband that this is something that you've done? What's the hope for the man or woman who's slept with seven other people but has now finally found the love of their life and they want to get married? What's the hope for the same-sex attractive person who, according to God, can't get married? What is the hope for the single person who can't ever find a spouse What's the hope for the wife who can't bear a child or the man who feels like they're not like the other burly, gun-loving men? What's the hope? Where's the redemption? There is hope and there is redemption, but it has nothing, listen, this is, if you listen to anything, you gotta listen to this part. It has nothing to do with your sexuality. It has nothing to do with your feeling one day, you know, it's nothing to do with you feeling comfortable in your body and skin. Your hope has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with if one day you'll ever get married. Because some of you might, are probably not going to get married in this room. It's, it's also the hope, it's not, it has nothing to do with someone forgiving you for all your sexual sins. Because maybe someone won't. And they'll say, that's too gross. I'm not marrying someone like that. I don't love someone like that. Truly, on this earth, it is likely that some of you will never get married. Some of you um, may never find peace within your own skin. 
But that's not where your redemption is found. It's not found in your body. Listen very closely. It's, it's found in Jesus. In John 8, there's this woman who's caught in sexual prostitution. She's probably caught in the act of having sex. She's brought out into the streets naked before all these men to be stoned and to be killed, to be judged. The law said that if you commit, if you commit prostitution, you're going to be killed. So Jesus shows up, and they want to stone her, and they want to test them. It's like, hey, you know, Jesus, we're going to kill, we're going to kill, this, kill this prostitute for her sexual sin. But Jesus does something really interesting. He asks them, whoever has no sin, let them cast the first stone. And sure enough, they all drop their stones and they walk away. And then all that's left is the prostitute, the sexually sinful human being in Jesus. And I'm sure, I imagine, this isn't in the text, but I imagine that he's holding a stone. And she's probably expecting for him to cast it. In this moment in space, time, and history, Jesus will put down the stone. And he told her, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. How can Jesus forgive her? How can he forgive her sexual sin, that sexual sin? At the Last Supper, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 12, he says that Jesus took bread. This is all going to connect. Please follow me. He took bread. And Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body. And then he broke the bread. He says, this is my body and breaks the bread. And he says, this is my body broken for you. He's saying in your sin, your body is broken. It's sexually broken. You have sinful sexuality, but I forgive you. I love you. And I will show you that I love you because I will break for you. I will let my body be pierced. I will let it be speared and I will die for you. Name one person in the world who's ever died for you. No one has ever died for you. But there's one man who has. That's amazing. His body was broken for you. So that one day your sexually broken, sinful body could be healed. There's no greater love that you could ever have on this planet than to fall in love with Jesus. I'm married. It's great to be married. It is good to be married. But there's nothing better than Jesus. It would be better for me to be single and to never be married than to not know Jesus. And to know Jesus than to not know Jesus. There's nothing more important. Stop making your sexuality so important. Stop making sex so important. I'm telling you the best thing you could have is a relationship with the guy who died for you because he loves you. How is that possible? Repent of your desires. Every day I have to do this. The desires of my heart. I mean, there's no more, like, for me, where, like, sin, my sexual sin desires are awful. I got to repent of those every single day. And you should too. Because the desires of my heart are cursed. 
They're corrupt. They're out of order. They're not in line with God's order. Repent that you've allowed your sexuality to define you and your happiness rather than Jesus. Trust God. Trust his order. Trust that Jesus loves you enough. Trust that you're made in his image. You have a purpose. You have design. Follow it. Follow God. Follow Jesus. There's clarity. There's truth. It is clear. It is hard, though. Very difficult. But there's community and fellowship in Christ and friendship. And we suffer together. Nothing better than having Jesus. Nothing better. Take the bread that he offers you and eat it. Take the cup and drink it. Be forgiven of your sins. Repent to him. He loves you. He cares about you. And if you never get married, it's okay. If you never have sex, it's okay. If you never have a baby, it's okay. If you never feel comfortable in your skin and you always feel like you're a boy stuck in a girl's body or a girl stuck in a boy's body, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to submit and act out on your desires. You don't have to be a slave to those things. You can follow Jesus. We'll walk with you and we'll walk together. You know, I, I tell, this is not in my notes, but I told Emily that if one of our boys ever um, is same-sex attracted, I want my sons to know this. That changes nothing in our relationship. He doesn't have to go seeking other men for community because I will offer him that community. He doesn't need to ever feel be lonely on Christmas because he can come to Christmas with me. He doesn't ever have to move out of the house. He can stay and live in my home. He can be with me all his days, all my days. He can be with me and my wife and rest and know that we got him. We're with him. In some ways as a parent, that's, you know, a lot of people's greatest fear is like, oh, my kid's saying it's attractive. But for me, nah. Nah. That's my son. Those are my boys. I got them. They don't need to see anything else outside. I'll, I'll be there. I'll jump in. I'll talk to them any time of the night, any moment they want. I'll be their dad. I'll offer that to them. They can confess and talk with me and repent with me and wrestle with me about anything that's going on in their lives. That's what, that's what the church offers us. Your sexuality, we can talk about it. And we can love each other. And we can wrestle with each other. And we can suffer together and weep together about this stuff. It's messy, it's hard, it's difficult. None of us are getting it right. But we can talk about it. it doesn't, these things don't have to be secrets. Yeah, I want my boys just to know that I love them and I got them. I want you guys to know that Jesus feels that way about you. I love you and I got you. Ride and die with me. That's what he says. Let's pray.